Vinyl Crisis. On LA's west side, a group of avid and devoted vinyl collectors scour the remaining handful of locally owned record shops for the rarest of original vinyl to bring you music you won't hear on any other radio platform. None of it is digital. This is how music was meant to be enjoyed. This is Vinyl Crisis. Salutations, friends. It's Vinyl Crisis. How are you, Vic? I'm wonderful. How was your uh, election day treating you? So? I wasn't going to talk about that, but since you brought it up, uh, fine. I'm, I'm an alien. What can I say? Uh, that's fine. Just well, observing. I, I'll tell you what. It's a great thing that we get to play the music we do today. Let's do that. That's what I'm looking forward to about Absolutely. today. Absolutely. Uh, we have a wonderful guest. Uh, Vic, do you want to tell our listeners about this wonderful guest? Yeah, absolutely. Before I give a mention of our guest, uh, just a very warm and humble uh, thank you to our friends at UCLA, Ariane and Ishan, for making this possible. We are going to be speaking to the one and only, the very dynamic, the wonderful, the incredible Kenny Burrell. Wonderful. Should we go to the phones and see if Mr. Burrell's there? Hello, sir. Are you there with us? Yes, I am. Thank oh. you very much. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's an absolute honor and a privilege. And just you, you are one of the uh, finest guitarists in the uh, in the book. 
I think it's fair to say. And uh, we, we were here to celebrate your wonderful work today. We're surrounded by vinyl records, uh, both as a, uh, with Kenny Burrell as a leader and also as a sideman. So we're, we're going to get into it. Vic, start the questions. Well, I think before we, we talk to the man, let me just say, uh, by way of context, we are listening to Blue Bash, uh, Verb recording with him and Jimmy. Uh, obviously, Kenny's the lead, and we are listening to A2, uh, Traveling, which is just one of my favorite songs because it's just bumping, right? Absolutely. Uh, Mr. Burrell, how are you today? I'm doing really well. Thank you very much. Excellent. We appreciate you joining us on this, uh, you know, momentous of days for us because we get to t- talk to Mr. Kenny Burrell. Um, and where are you? Where are you in the world? Are you, you're in Los Angeles. Yes, I'm in Los Angeles right now. I'm in my office at UCLA. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, we're going to come on to talk to you about that because. Uh, one of the things we do on Vinyl Crisis is we like to uh, dig a little deeper and find some of the stories behind the music. Sometimes we play the mon- some of the non-obvious recordings from our favorite rec- uh, recording artists. And um, you're certainly up there with the greats. So uh, we have some, uh, hopefully, a couple of interesting surprises to run past you in, in a short while. But let's start this. Um, in terms of your musical history, sir, um, tell us how you got started and, and tell us how you chose the guitar. Well, I got started, I guess, because I was from a family that that loved music, and there was music all the time going on in my in my house. Other sang and played a little piano and sang in a church choir. Father just had a good time playing ukulele and and just dancing around and singing as well. So- and then my oldest brother. Uh, William, Billy, he picked up the guitar first. He he was 11 years older than me, and he started to play the play the guitar. And I heard all of this stuff going on around me. And and uh, at when I got to be about uh, 11 or 12, I decided I wanted to play some music. So R was there. But I was not uh, especially enthusiastic about it because I guess I had been seeing it so much around the house and and uh, I wasn't too excited about it at that point. But what I was excited about was listening to radio and uh, listening to the big bands and especially the bands of uh, Count Basie and Duke Ellington. And I, I liked the sound of uh, the saxophone with Coleman Hawkins and Lester Young those kind of people, the tenor sax. And so that was kind of what I thought I'd like to do. But then, remember, I was at 11, about 11 years old then. And, but this was during World War II. And METAL, M-E-T-A-L, was very, uh, ex, you know, rare. And, and, and anything made out of metal was expensive. So my family was not, was fairly poor, and we could not afford a saxophone. So that sort of soon faded out of the picture for me to get uh, an instrument like that. So I settled for uh, the guitar because it was something that I could play a little bit of just from watching my brother. I hadn't been taking it serious, but I did play a little bit of it. And so I decided, well, I'll, I'll, I'll play the guitar a little bit. You know, I bought my first guitar for about 10 bucks at a pawn shop and started from there. Wonderful. And then uh, after a while, I began to hear this gentleman named Charlie Christian with the Benny Goodman Orchestra who was playing the electric guitar. 
prior to him, most of the guitar I heard was just acoustic. Yeah. But when he played the electric guitar, it took us. It took a different on different different role. It was it was loud like the trumpet and the saxophone, and they could play single lines and like the horns. So I said the guitar is not so bad after all. So I kind of stuck with it. <laughs> That's wonderful, and I'm actually glad that you picked up on the, or you mentioned the, uh, the the tenor sax connection because listening to your music over the years, I've certainly picked up on you know that that counter between your your guitar solos and you know the tenor sax that's playing with you. Is that something you've consciously done? I mean, you obviously admire that instrument so much, and it's wonderful to hear it in your own words. But um, do you love the interplay between those two instruments? Well, uh, yes, I do. But uh, the other thing I, I like about the tenor saxophone is its full, robust sound. Mm. That certainly probably has had an influence on me trying to get a real full mid-range sound on the guitar. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, speaking of wonderful music and wonderful saxophonists, your discography, sir, is really massive. Um, and our apologies for only being able to get into some of the basics. But, uh, you know, you've recorded with everybody from Stanley T., Sonny Rollins. Uh, I know you were on albums that were orchestrated and conducted by Oliver Nelson, another great uh, brass man. What was it about some of these guys that made you just feel so comfortable with them making the music you did? Well, first of all, I was honored to to even be able to play with those those heroes of mine because they they were great musicians. When I was in Detroit, I was listening to them on the radio. I eventually had a chance to play and record with Coleman Hawkins and play some gigs with Lester Young. Wow! And of course, with John Coltrane and Johnny Hodges, many many of those people like that. And it was just a blessing, as far as I was concerned, to be able to do that. But of course, I worked hard, like many other musicians, and practiced a lot. Tried to make it make it strong, so that my dreams could come true. Mm-hmm. They obviously did, because I, I had a, as you say, I had a great fortune and a great great uh, uh, opportunities play with so many great musicians, saxophonists and trumpets and pianists, et cetera. Well, I read that uh, as a young man, as a student at Wayne State University, your first major recording was with Dizzy, John Coltrane, Percy Heath, and Milt Jackson. Right, it was, yeah. And, I mean, that's just like the Mount Rushmore right uh, uh, for for some of us were you intimidated at all and how did that session come about because it seems to have really set your career on the wonderful trajectory that we've known it for so many years since yeah well it came about i believe i I never really followed in detail how this came about but i think it came about from a recommendation from milt jackson who was about uh, a generation older than me who was working with Dizzy at that time. But Milt had also gone to the same high school I had gone to in, in Detroit, Michigan, Miller High School. And so I kind of knew him because he would, um, he would he was a Detroiter, so we played together sometimes in Detroit anyway. And then he would come back. In fact, I remember him coming back to the high school and jamming with us. And I got to know him pretty well. And, um, and at that particular instant time in Dizzy's group, two of the musicians did not 
for various for various reasons could not make the gig in Detroit. So Dizzy needed uh, some some extra musicians. So I got the call to come in and play and replace saxophone, alto saxophone. Drummer couldn't make it, so they got a drummer from Chicago. But the point was, uh, it happened that we Dizzy was going to work at a club in Detroit. Actually, the club Wana is called for one month, and so I got the call to come and do this gig with Jimmy uh, with Dizzy for one month. I couldn't believe it, but it happened. So I went down. Of course, as you say, I was nervous, and uh, I was, but I was so proud, and I, I even framed my first paycheck I got from him. <laughs> but the thing was, um, Dizzy had a had a wonderful way with musicians. But he was. Um, uh, just a fine teacher and a, and a fine leader. I would remember being on the bandstand, you know, like I say, a little bit on the nervous side, but Dizzy would be telling jokes and we'd be be laughing and, and all of a sudden he's counting the song off. He finished the joke and one, two, three, four, we entered the song so you don't have time to get nervous. He, he He's a master of that kind of dealing with people. And so at the end of that, engagement, I think about almost at the end of their engagement, he decided to record that group, and that's the record that you have that's, that, that came out with Burke's Works and Tim Tindale with John Coltrane, Bill Jackson, Percy Heath. That was on Dizzy's own label because it was in Detroit. He was in partnership with a gentleman in Detroit, and so that's why it came about in Detroit. But I was so proud of that because that was my first real um, uh, professional recording. I had done a couple in Detroit, but they, they, they had only had local distribution. But for, you know, mass distribution and, and around the country and around the world, that was it for me, and, and it was a great beginning. That's wonderful. And can I congratulate you on having like an encyclopedic knowledge of, of your, all these recordings and, you know, the intimate surroundings that you, that you had? I mean, you've played on so many records, 97 credits as a leader, and hundreds as a as a sideman on some of the the finest jazz recordings we've ever heard so uh you know thank you so much and it's just just wonderful we went an hour or half an hour is not enough thick for this no absolutely (laughs) so you know what i'm so excited to be talking to kenny i'm going to take over and ask him another question and uh kenny you have this magical sense of playing with three of you know my favorite organists of all time obviously you uh played with Shirley Scott on uh, Traveling Light. You played with Jack McDuff, another Titan, and the one and only, the incredible uh, Jimmy Smith. And I was wondering how that partnership came together, how you guys met, and how you guys were able to make so many albums together. Well, I made a lot of albums with Jimmy Smith, and uh, that came about because... Jimmy first came to New York, I believe it was around 1958, and uh, he was working in the in the in, in the village at a club, and we were all going to go down to see this new great organ player. I went down, and of course, and uh, when I was there, owner of Blue Note, Alfred Lyons, I had been recording for him since 1956, so and he knew what I. I made records with him. So he asked me to sit in with Jimmy that evening that I was there. 
British, yes, I'd love to do that. So I did, and, and uh, it went very well. Alfred decided that he wanted to put Jimmy and I together on many more records, and so that's how that started. And then the, that combination worked well, and we went on to record for other companies other than other than Blue Note, but it started with Alfred Lyons on Blue Note. And then the other thing about uh, Shirley Scott, I believe that came about through my record, my, my uh, association with Stanley Turntine. Yeah. They were married. Mm-hmm. And so I guess I'm not, I'm not sure, but I did think I recorded with Stanley before I recorded with uh, Shirley or uh, Stanley and Shirley. Yeah. And then Jack McDuff was just a good friend and, a, and a, a one of my padres, and he and I, you know, like all musicians, to each other. And uh, he, because he liked what I like, he liked what I did as well. But I, I think it was because I had done these things with Jimmy Smith that he asked me to do some stuff with him, or or the company did. Anyway, I enjoyed I enjoyed working with Jack and with Shirley. Of course, with Jimmy, uh, Jimmy, it was so special that we hardly ever had any rehearsals at all. It was just a simpatico all the way, you know. Wonderful. And I'm going to be selfish and ask you a similar question, sir, if that's okay. Uh, you play on two uh, two records by one of my favorite um, artists of all time, Mr. Cal Jader. Um, right. And, uh, you know, they happen to be, he didn't have a lot of guitar in his work, but when he did, he went to you, um, certainly in his later years. Um, right. Tell us a little bit about that collaboration because th- those are wonderful records, and your guitar just absolutely makes the wall of sound perfect on those. I appreciate that, and thank you very much. But you know, I was very—how can I say? I was very busy as a, a first-call guy or on-call guy at, with the guitar in New York when I was um, was there, and moved to California to some extent. I, I was that as well, but when I got to California, I started working as a as a teacher, you know, as a professor at UCLA, and but not as much as I did in New York. But in New York, I was very busy, and I think I was very flattered by Al and the people who called me to make those recordings with him. Mm. Yeah, it was, you know, just wonderful work. Absolutely, absolutely, and you touched on the the. The golden point, actually, which is what we wanted to raise next with you, which is <clears throat> your work as a professor of uh, of music and right. at UCLA. And uh, you know, one thing that you know we're we're obsessed with, you know, frankly, music of the past on vinyl records. So you know, you could say that we're a little bit, you know, out of touch maybe with what's going on today. But you, well, I heard vinyl's coming back. Well, that's it. That's what. I, well, that's <laughs> an on, that's a raging debate between Vic and I. He says it never went away. It never went anywhere, especially for us <laughs> jazz or jazz heads. <laughs> And, but the question is really more one of uh, what do you see now as you're spending time with students and, and mentoring, uh, you know, individuals and groups? Do you uh, do you sort of feel that the groups are out there to uh, to nurture some great musical talent for the future? Um, I've heard mixed reviews of this subject. Well, I believe that there's a lot of talent, enormous amount of talent here and in, in, in Los Angeles and all across this country and actually all across the world in terms of music, in terms of jazz and, and uh, the wonderful uh, wonderful idea of improvisation that is, is essence, that is the essence of jazz. 
I believe that it's there. It's, it's America's gift to the world, and it's there, and it's not going to be erased at all. It's just going to be there. Mm-hmm. Oh, to anybody who uh, loves it, tries to promote it like you guys are doing and try to keep it alive, because as you know, there's not a lot of um, organized uh, organizations uh, um, how can I say, organizational um, effort mm-hmm. to to help jazz. We need more. For example, we started um, uh, Los Angeles Jazz Orchestra Unlimited a couple of years ago, and now we just made our first recording. And but I, the reason I did that is because we have symphony orchestras in many major cities, most of the major cities, and some of them not so major cities, we have symphony orchestras who play basically European classical music. And so I figured, well, the many jazz musicians that I know that set this great talent have nothing to look forward to. They have no Los Angeles Philharmonic. They have no opera orchestra. They have nothing, very few uh, things that they can look for as a steady, a steady work for themselves. Mm. But I thought I could start something Maybe it would catch on in other cities, but that's why we started the Los Angeles Jazz Orchestra to give the guys uh, a place where they can uh, that they can look forward to playing and, and, and have a steady job. And so, and I hope that we can become, as we be, uh, succeed, that we can become a model for other cities to do the same thing because we do not have a St. Louis uh, Jazz Orchestra. Or Philadelphia Jazz Orchestra. We don't, or Dallas. We and I would like to see it in all of those, all of those cities. You know, absolutely. And I think that's a that's a real credit to your to your work in the recent years uh, to continue that. Um, one thing I was going to ask. Oh, sorry. The problem is this: that so many students of mine, and uh, uh, just so many, not even necessarily students of mine, just so many students and so many great jazz musicians. They practice and they learn this great and difficult art of improvisation. And when they get to a certain level, there's nothing waiting for them as employment. Yeah. And they're just out there scuffling like everybody else. And I think that this, this is a very high art form. It's a very popular art form because it makes you feel good, makes you snap your fingers, etc. But it's a very highly intellectual art form as well. And it deserves a lot more credit and a lot more support than it's getting. So that's why I started the orchestra. And I hope that I hope that it'll become a, a, a example and a model for other cities. Absolutely. It reminds me actually of something that a previous uh, interviewee said on our show, which was Gary Bartz. And he said, the individuals are out there, but there's not enough groups for them to aspire to be in. And maybe the uh, uh, Los Angeles Jazz Orchestra is one of those groups and we should look for that model to be replicated throughout the, the rest right, of the nation. Yeah, I would like to see that in many other cities. Thank you. Yeah, that's, 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 the, that's the problem. And uh, as a teacher, uh, going back to your original question, yes, uh, jazz is, is, is doing very well in terms of the ability, actually the scholarship as well, and history and so forth, and the, and the ability of these students to play and to write music, but they need some. They need the opportunities. The opportunities are missing. You know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, you know, like you said, venues. I mean, there's one of the UCLA has one of the finest music venues I think I've ever been to. Maybe there's one or two others in the world, but Royce Hall is just. Such oh yes, a, it is a great hall, isn't it? 
one of the best I, I've, I've been all over the world, practically, and uh, that's one of the best places I've ever been to. Are we going to get the chance? We're going to be doing a number on, on uh, December 3rd. Excellent. I was going to say we're going to get the chance to uh, see any Mr. Burrell action down at the Royce Hall. You said December the 3rd? December 3rd, Saturday, yeah. Oh, wonderful. We'll look out for that and we'll post a, a link up for our listeners. Yeah, and Kenny, uh, I know that birthday wishes are forthcoming for you. And I think the December 3rd event is tied into your birthday and you're going to have your orchestra. But if people wanted to learn more about the event and buy tickets or, you know, contact UCLA, what's the best place we can tell people to go to? Well, uh, ricehall.org is a a place where you can get information about the tickets. Okay. ricehall.org. Okay, perfect. So I want to just follow up uh, with one more question about education and then circle it back to your wonderful discography. Uh, You are a recognized leader in the world of Duke Ellington. And uh, Duke Ellington for me is something very, very dear. Um, really changed my entire perspective of music. Uh, And I was wondering, what was it for you about his music and his orchestration that brought you to have this sense of appreciation and then become a scholar and, and just this incredible legacy that to your earlier point has to be taught, has to be lived and has to be breathed. And um, I can't think of a better person to do that uh, than, than Duke Ellington. Uh, My history with love for Duke Ellington and the respect for Duke Ellington kind of goes back. uh, I can, uh, the, the music itself, like, like for me and many other people, was became a part of my life, you know, from a kid on. It was there, and it was just uh, great music, and it had a certain quality about it. We didn't understand what it was, but it was there, and it's very elegant, and at the same time, very soulful, and you know, and and rhythmic. So it was just part of part of part of being American, part of being an African American, part of part of being uh, in jazz, part of being in American music. And after college, I was, I remember I had to, I had to write a paper on uh, uh, something. And I, being a jazz musician, I decided it was for an English class. I, and I decided I was going to write a paper on jazz, which is, you know, this is logical. But I started to read about, I went to the library and started reading about all of my favorite jazz musicians. And as I was doing this research, I realized, and this ties into the story I was telling a few minutes ago, that most of them did not succeed in business. You know, they were out here and they were struggling and did not make it too well in the business aspect, but they were still great musicians. And, you know, we now know part of the reasons for that. But the point was, when I read about Duke Ellington, I started to realize that he was a true success in terms of the business aspect. In other words, he did what he wanted to do for a number of years, almost a half a century, doing quality music and making a good living and, 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 and making all kinds of recording. And I, I got fascinated by how he was able to maneuver this stuff that was so, where the deck was kind of stacked, stacked against him as a jazz musician, as an African-American, et cetera, et cetera. 
but I, then I started to study his life and, and learn how he was able to, to do this and all of the things and lessons that, that are involved in his example. And later on, I um, started to st- dig deeper into the, the music that he was producing, which was also not only just great music, but it was also revealing a lot of the sounds that were born in America that were not heard before. Ellington took the sound that we hear every day and organized it. He, 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 was, he was able to put this stuff on paper and also verbally tell his musicians what he wanted to do. And this was not, no other musicians were doing that. Wow. That's wonderful insight, yeah. And and, I mean, and, and oh. then uh, the other thing is so many. There's so many elements that uh, I, I, we don't have time to talk about it. But the, the point was that he was able to utilize uh, improvisation like no other one, no other musician. Every every musician in his band was a great improviser, and he they also had different roles to play. But that became part of his composition. He was he was treating his uh, output, compositional output, like no other musician jazz or classical music. Just for your just for your information, there are more books right now written in the in the, this century and in the last century about Duke Ellington than any other musician, living or dead. <laughs> wow. So, this is uh you can you can we can research that if you like, but I mean more serious scholarly books written about him because he's considered the greatest musical contributor of the 20th century because he took a new sound that was born in America and turned it not only into great jazz music but into great high art music mm. and no one else did that and so all of that is is part of why I'm enthusiastic about Ellington, why I teach the course, because it's, it's not only about the, how, to, how to create great music, but he was just being himself, as you know, and letting him, the things that are deep inside him come out, but also using his knowledge, his head, as, 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 as an intellectual, and putting those things together. And uh, so it, he was just doing that, and, but it, it worked, and then he succeeded how to deal with all of the elements of business and, 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 and the elements of in society that were negative. And he was able to become a role model, not only for me, and I have to say he was one of the role models for me, and that's part of why I believe part of my success is based on that. But not only for me, but many other people um, that, are, that have been out here. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. That's why he's so respected, and, and all of the jazz musicians... Um, had a, when they had a vote on who was the number one jazz musician of the 20th century, themselves voted him. This is in Downbeat Magazine. Voted Ellington number one. Absolutely, and a, and a shining example he was for for everyone who collaborated with him and and the collaborators with the with the collaborators and uh, right. a, a set of role models was born. So that's wonderful and. But it just remains, uh, Mr. Kenny Burrell, for us to say thank you for your wonderful contribution uh, to the music. I, I don't know of another 
more soulful, bluesy guitarist who I admire and uh, all the records, whenever I see your name written on them, I know it's a seal of quality and, uh, and a good purchase is about to happen. <laughs> thank, you. thank you very much. No, thank, thank you for your time, sir, and we'll look forward to seeing you at the Royals Hall on uh, December the 3rd and hopefully we'll, uh, we'll get to do this in person one day. That's great. I'll look forward to that. All right. Take care now. been listening to Vinyl Crisis, featuring rare and eclectic all-vinyl musical treasures. 